it suddenly occurred to me this morning that I'm here next Sunday. I'm gone the two Sundays after that camp. Uh, Dan will be here that first Sunday, and then he'll be gone the second Sunday for camp. Jonathan is gone uh, some Sundays there. So we're beginning that phase of the year where we're all coming and going. So anyone who's going to be here the next couple of weeks, next you know, for this month, maybe let me know, um, and so we can fill in the gaps for the absences we're going to have um, on Sunday mornings at least. But um, but it's a fun time of year because camp is is starting again, and I know uh, so many of our our people, both the kids and adults, are a part of that. So um, so it's a good thing but it can be a challenging thing for us to keep things moving for everybody else that's still here. Um, and, and again, congratulations to Lily for, um, for her achievements, and uh, I know she's excited about the next phase of life that awaits her. Uh, it's, always, it's always an exciting time to close one chapter and begin another, and so I look forward to celebrating with her and her family. Uh, it, I've been here going on six years, and it makes me feel a little bit older than it, maybe it should to remember how young she was when we moved here. Um, and wow, time flies. And uh, uh, you've grown and become such a fantastic young lady and such a wonderful person that touches the people around you. So congratulations. The Bible is a beautiful collection of books. And one of the, my favorite things about the Bible is its variety. You can find within the covers of our Bible instruction for living, the story of Jesus. You can find the stories of God's people and how he provides for them and, and comforts them and leads them. You can find prophecies. You can find revelation. And you can find beautiful, beautiful poetry. For almost any occasion, for almost any situation, you can find scripture that speaks to that moment and speaks to your heart. The Psalms I love because, as I have said very openly, I struggle in, in, my, in one area of my spiritual life that I struggle the most in is prayer and talking to God and dedicating time and energy to doing that and doing it well. The expression of the heart is a difficult thing for some people to express the feelings on the heart. And we're encouraged by the fact knowing that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We read in Scripture that God has sent this Spirit that dwells with us as Christians that helps to speak on our behalf when we're unable to because human words will fail us. I get great encouragement in the Psalms because we're reading someone's prayer journal. We're reading someone's diary. David was not writing a book to be published. He was writing his thoughts and his feelings and his personal walk and journey with God. And so there are times when I feel things that I have a difficult time articulating, and I can go to the Psalms and I can see them articulated for me because someone else has endured this. Someone else has felt this. David, a man after God's own heart, is how he's described and yet his journey was full of ups and downs. We can read the Psalms and we find grief. We find fear, anxiety, stress. 
We find deep depression and sadness and sorrow. And we find joy. And in Psalm 23, we find a little taste of all of it, all wrapped up in a sense of comfort and peace. Psalm 23 is probably the most well-known psalm. It's probably the most often quoted psalm. We have at least two hymns in our hymnal that use the, the words of this, this psalm. This one is, is very well known. And I think the reason it has been so prolific in its use is because it expresses so many things that we either feel or even perhaps wish to feel. I don't know how many of us could on any given day echo the words of David here in Psalm 23. How many of us could express the feeling of comfort, peace, and joy that he has in his relationship with God? But reading it and seeing that in someone else perhaps helps us to get in touch with that side of our relationship with God that, for me at least, is so difficult sometimes. You know, spiritual, a spiritual journey can sometimes become very pragmatic. And my brain works very pragmatically. I'm a very practical person. And I think sometimes about my spiritual journey in that way. I don't connect emotionally enough. But in those moments when I do, I feel the depth of the emotional response that I have to the grace of God, to what God offers me. And when I read Psalm 23, along with many others, I see that joy expressed, and it helps me to connect with my own inner joy that sometimes has difficulty getting out. This morning, we're going to work through Psalm 23. We're going to dive into the heart of David, the emotions he expresses, and we're going to ask ourselves, could we say the same thing? Could we say what David is saying? Would we express our journey and our feelings and our relationship with God in the same way? And if not, is that something we should work toward? Sometimes the Psalms represent an expression of things that we don't always have the words for, and sometimes they represent an ideal worth moving toward. David talks about joy. He talks about the fear of God. He talks about relying on God in times of hardship. And we read them, and sometimes they relate fully to us, and we feel that, we've experienced that, and sometimes we think, I don't know that I've ever thought about that in my relationship with God. Maybe that's something I should work on. So the Psalms oftentimes will clue us in to an area of our spiritual journey that we can work on. I find all of that in Psalm 23, all variety of those emotions and responses. So we're going to work through it. Talk about what David's going through. Talk about what he's expressing and try to find that in our life as well that we can connect deeper with God. So let's begin in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, this uh, expression of the Lord as a shepherd, uh, we actually talked about this a few, few weeks ago in our Wednesday night class, the names of Jesus, uh, because Jesus is also referred to as the good shepherd or the shepherd. Uh, he himself has uh, many parables and descriptions uh, of, of himself as a shepherd. So we talked a lot about what that means to be a shepherd. But David's reference to God or the Lord as his shepherd says a lot of things about how he sees God. He sees him, yes, as a leader and a director, but also as a protector. And we have to acknowledge God can be many, many things to us. 
The world, in its description of our view of God, tries to belittle it and, and dwindle it down into one singular thing. Criticisms of Christian people or people of faith or those who believe in God often have a lot to do with the attitude that they perceive God to have. It is somewhat offensive to the world that we believe in this singular, all-powerful, almighty being. And that that being uh, seems to, on a cursory read of scripture, have some very bad habits. You know, like striking people dead and making war against other nations. And those things are pointed to as negatives. That we serve some egotistical, wrathful, vengeful God who demands our 100% perfect loyalty and obedience to him. Those of us who have a more thorough and deep relationship with Scripture and with God understand that that's not true. But our ability to explain and exemplify that to the world is very, very important. We have to teach those around us, those who do not know, the proper understanding of God. And a proper understanding of God is not simply an all-powerful being who demands something of us, but it is a gentle shepherd who also leads and protects. David is explaining here a couple of different aspects of God's relationship with him, and it very much has to do with providing and protecting. And some of the things that the world misunderstands about God's instruction have more to do with providing and protecting. I talk a lot and point people in, in discussions about God and about Christian evidences. I point people a lot of times to Leviticus chapter 11. I know, Leviticus. I Don't let your eyes glaze over right now. But um, it's okay. It, God knows it's boring, okay? But he put it in there and we can learn something from it. Leviticus chapter 11 deals with dietary restrictions for God's people. It's not a fascinating read, I understand. And people look at that and go, what in the world? This God, this thing in the sky is telling them what they can and can't eat and what they can and can't wear and how they have to prepare their food and all this and that and the other. What's clean and what's unclean? And you can look at that and say, look at these arbitrary rules that God is putting in place. But what they didn't know then is something that we discovered in the last 200 years. I don't know if you know, but medical science is it's fairly new. It's a fairly new thing. And one of the most, one of the newest things about our understanding of medical science is our microorganisms, germs, toxins, and pathogens. We understand trigonosis. We understand uh, tularemia. We know why you have to properly prepare uh, pork and why we have to be careful about the waste products of certain animals like rabbits. Rabbits, pork, the shrimp, those things are absolutely off the menu in Leviticus chapter 11. But God couldn't download an understanding of microorganisms and pathogens and toxins into the Israelites. Their heads would have short-circuited. Instead, he tells them, here are some rules. Follow these rules so that you can stay alive until Jesus comes. That's what he's trying to do. Keep them alive till Jesus comes. But we miss that because we see arbitrary rules. We see a, a dictatorial God. That's what the world sees. But understanding that there are things that we've recently discovered that confirm why that was a good idea, that no one could have ever known to put in there, clues us in that there's more to the story, that these rules that God puts in place are not arbitrary and demanding. They are, in fact, a way to protect and provide. He's being a good shepherd leading beside still waters to the green grass, 
to the restoration of the soul, to the encouragement, the growth, and edification of all of us. Everything God does is to protect us, provide for us, and get us where we need to be, to make us lie down in green pastures, to go beside the quiet waters, and to be restored. Now, I like the last part of verse 3. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides me in paths of righteousness. And why does he do it? For the simple sake of who he is. Because God is God, he guides me in paths of righteousness. It's not for my glorification, and it's not because he arbitrarily demands things of me, but because of his holy, righteous nature, God asks me to come along with him in righteousness. Do you understand how unique and transformative and beautiful that is? We have a shepherd, a God, a protector and a provider that leads us in the proper way to go. The paths of righteousness, if you maintain the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd, is actually really important because sheep are really dumb and they're pretty fragile. And if they're not walking on the right path, they will fall off that path and they will die. You can startle a sheep to death. They're pretty fragile. So here we see God the shepherd and God in our life leading in these paths the right way, not because he just thinks it's the right way, but because that's what's going to get us where we're going. We have a God who is righteous, holy, all-knowing, and a protector and provider, and he looks at us feeble, stupid, fragile people, and he says, why don't you come along to where I am? Why don't you take a seat at the table with me? Why don't I give you a little piece of myself so that you can be more like me? That's a beautiful story, and it's unlike any other the world has ever told. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, there's some terrifying language right there. I don't know where this valley is, but I don't want to be there. Some translations will say a deep, dark valley. Some early manuscripts will have that language, whether this is a literal place that David is referencing or whether it is just an acknowledgement of the darkness of the valleys of life. Not every experience in life is a mountaintop experience. You know, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about uh, a mountaintop experience that we read about in the Gospels, the transfiguration. Now, that's a mountaintop experience. They're literally on top of a mountain. Elijah and Moses show up with Jesus. It's a beautiful scene, but we don't always stay on the mountaintop in encouragement and in praise. We have to sometimes go down in the valley. And that's a hard journey. And David acknowledges that I'm going to be there sometimes. Read the Psalms. David's there quite a bit. David's a bit of a, a brooding poet sometimes. And he says, it doesn't matter. It's not that God is going to keep me from the valleys. The way David writes that is even though I walk, it's a present tense thing. I'm in the valley. And even though I find myself in the valley, even though death is at my door, even though the fragility of this world and the, the wrath of this world are at my back constantly. He says, I, I'm not going to be afraid of it. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. There is an assurance that David has that it doesn't matter where he's at and where he's walking and what he's going through. God is with him and nothing else matters. 
I think it might be one of the hardest attitudes to capture in life. We can sit here in the safety and comfort of our church community and talk all day about it, but when we get into daily life, real world living, it's the hardest thing to maintain. The idea that I'm saved by the grace of God, I have the blood of Christ covering me from my sin, nothing else matters, nothing else can hurt me. To have that eternal vision that allows us to get rid of all the distractions of life, it's easy to talk about. And sometimes we, we, we can feel it, but it, it's so fleeting. It's so hard to remember that we're saved. Because Jesus died for us, our value is set. God valued us that much. There's nothing else that can hurt me. That's a hard thing to live, an easy thing to say. But David... David, one who probably went through some darker times than any of us will ever know, David understood it. I love this phrase as well at the end of verse 4. Yeah, verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now that's interesting because a rod and a staff in the context of a shepherd, and just as we understand it, they're tools of discipline. They're tools of guidance. They are designed to keep you from going where you want to go. They're guardrails. They're roadblocks. Now, how is it that that's comforting? You know, growing up, I grew up in a household that uh, was full of love and affection, but, it was, but there was discipline. And when you stepped out of line, there was a punishment for it. And I never, I, I, first of all, never felt like it was overbearing or abusive. I, I, you know, I came to understand it, and that was just how, how we were all raised. Uh, and, and my parents got to find out because they have three kids 10 years between each kid, they basically raised a child in, in, in three different generations. And I, it's been fun watching them learn how they've had to adjust discipline with, with all three of us because we're very different children. And uh, now my dad is 62 and he's raising his first daughter. We're raising our first daughters at the same time because they're the same age. So we sometimes have to, you know, talk to one another and get advice from one another because we're going through the same thing at the same time. It's really unique. But I joke with my sister about what an easy life she has, you know. She's never mowed the yard. She, she's got dad around her finger, you know. He's gotten old and soft. And I remind her, I say, those are not parents anymore. Those are not my parents. Those are old people trying to get into heaven. And they are, they are much kinder to, to my sister than they were me. But that notwithstanding... It, a tough thing to grasp and to understand when we face discipline and we have rules and guidelines and laws and lanes is that those things are there to keep us safe. And the world looks at discipline and rules as something oppressive. But they're no more oppressive than the laws that govern our, our, the operation of automobiles. You know, we have lines in the road that are designed to, to keep us safe. We have a degree of comfort knowing where we're supposed to go and how we're supposed to get there, and that there will be a lane of safe passage for us. Um, that said, there probably won't be roundabouts in heaven for that very reason, but that's, that's, another, that's another conversation. Anyway, we have rules to keep us safe, and we can look at them as oppressive guidelines to restrict us from what we want to do, or we can look at them for the beauty that they are, a path forward that we can be sure is safe for us. And for David, the guidelines of God's standard of living, 
the rules that he had put in place for David offered comfort because he knew that if he followed after that, he had safe passage. The rod and the staff give us comfort to know that if we stay in God and in his will, we will be safe. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The preparation of a table is a very, very important thing in their culture. In Semitic culture, you are who you eat with. So if you are eating with people who are well-regarded and uh, people of honor, then honor is bestowed upon you. If you eat with people who are dishonorable, then dishonor is bestowed upon you. And we see that played out in the people Jesus sometimes chose to have meals with. It created great controversy that he ate with tax collectors because they were, they were on the lower rung of society because of their profession. And yet Jesus chose to eat with them knowing that when you eat with someone in a Semitic culture, you share, you get to share their standing in society. So David says, you prepare a table. Now there's some safety and security, and, and we read this sometimes. I think the, the way I read it is, uh, you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. That means you provide for me in spite of the fact that there are people around me that want to do me harm. And I don't know if that's really the most accurate way of understanding that verse. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Now, we can look at that and say, ah, look at me. I'm provided for. You can't touch me because God's on my side. Ah, fair enough. But what about this? To prepare a table in the presence of enemies means that the animosity that exists between these two parties has to be set aside. For the table to be prepared, for them to join in the breaking of bread together, there has to be some peace established before that can happen. God is a great peacemaker. He brings peace where there is conflict. Enemies are no longer enemies, but they are brethren because of God. In fact, our own animosity that exists with us and God, did you know, by the way, do you know we're at war with God sometimes? We used to be. We used to be. Read Romans chapter 5. Because that'll tell you that we, we have been at war with God because of our sin, but because of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, we have peace. We have peace. A table has been prepared where we and God can commune together and join together because of Jesus. We're no longer enemies. We're at peace. We're friends. And the people around us, the world around us, we don't have war with them. We don't have conflict with them. Because of Jesus, because of our Lord, because of God, a table is prepared. Bonds are built. Peace is established. That's the power of God and his shepherding. The table is prepared in the presence of enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. This is, um, this is a hygienic uh, thing, but it's also a thing of honor. Um, to have your head anointed with oil, that would have come at an, at an expense and... And so that is, a, that is a point of honor and of, of hygiene and health, and it shows where you stand to be anointed with oil. My cup overflows. I just, like, I just like that phrase. My cup is overflowing. I have an abundance. I have more than I need. God has filled our lives so abundantly, and if we walk in his will and we seek him, we don't even have enough room to hold all the love that he bestows upon us. 
And then David offers this conclusion. And I think it is the most natural of conclusions to all of the assertions he's made. That God is our shepherd. There is nothing we could possibly want because he provides it all. Rest and food and comfort and restoration. Peace with our enemies and with the world around us. Honor and anointing. And then the conclusion, which is so natural. Surely, surely, David says, goodness and loving kindness. And some will say mercy. Goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Have you ever felt like there was something that followed you in life? You ever felt like you had bad luck? I know people that say, oh, I just have bad luck. Or I'm, I'm, I'm clumsy. I'm accident prone. You know, we talk this way about people. They have a tendency toward things. Um, we have a, I, my family would say I'm accident prone. They get a little bit nervous when I get around power tools. Fair enough, I've, I've done a bit of injury to myself. The thing is, I'm not really just klutzy or clumsy. I, I can be in a hurry. That's the real problem. I get hasty. And I try to get things done really quick, and I end up making mistakes or hurting myself. or you know, I don't think things through. I'm a little impulsive. That's the truth of it. These traits that we have can create results that kind of follow us around. We have a bit of a reputation about it. You remember the old Peanuts cartoons? There was the character Pigpen, and he was filthy. And he was just covered in dirt and dust all the time. And I loved the way that Charles Schultz drew him. It didn't matter where he was or what he was doing. He always had like a cloud of dust billowing up off of him. As if it was just, he was producing dirt. That's how life feels sometimes. It feels like no matter where I go, I've got this just cloud of dirt all around me. We can go through life and we can have sin and judgment and wrath and failure and embarrassment and shame follow us around like this cloud of dust or because of God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ, goodness and mercy can be the cloud that follows in our wake. Goodness and loving kindness can be what we bring to the picture when we enter it. Because of God, because of his provision and protection, goodness and loving kindness will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord is a very important phrase for David. David had this dream. He had this dream because uh, the kingdom was a complicated thing. You had a northern portion, a southern portion. It's, it's still united under David at this point, but, but there were a couple of different places where they would go to worship. You know, they, they, had, they had tabernacles and places of sacrifice, and, and the sacrifices were made in one place, and the tabernacle of worship is in another place. And David had this dream. He had this dream that they could build a house, a house where God would live that they could literally have a house for God to live in where they would go to worship and make sacrifice and it would all be in one place. And the worship and the experience of God would be unified. That was David's dream. That was his vision. David is talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord. He means that he, he's talking about dwelling in a place of worship and presence with God. Eventually, David finds the location where this will be built. Uh, Mount Moriah, 
or within that range of Mount Moriah is where the city of Jerusalem and where the temple itself would eventually be built. David finds that location and and construction begins and eventually God's people had a house for God to live in where they could interact with him in a manner of speaking. We don't have a temple today. How do we dwell in the house of the Lord forever? David was longing for it and believing that it would come to fruition because of God's faithfulness. He's expressing all these wonderful effects that come from being and dwelling with God and in God. And we can kind of relate to all that, but I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord. We think of that as I'm going to heaven. That's not what David was meaning. David was talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord to be in the physical presence of God in a temple in worship for as long as possible. You and I don't have a temple to go to. There's no house where God dwells on this earth. In the Christian age, because of the power of Christ's blood, though, we have a temple. It's within us. It's in our heart. God said the blood of Jesus is so valuable and so significant and so altering that it allows me to dwell within you. The temple of the Lord is us. He lives within us and through us and around us. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever for us in the Christian age is to have an interconnectivity with the Spirit of God that comes through the power of Christ's blood. That is both theologically complicated and incredibly, incredibly comforting to understand that God wants to be connected with you and he gave us the ingredients to do it. The blood of Christ spilled on the cross brings us together with God. All of the things that David expressed, though thousands of years old, are consistent with what we have experienced and what we feel from time to time. And sometimes Psalm 23 helps me to understand a little bit better what that relationship is supposed to feel like. Because sometimes my faith becomes a matter of routine. Sometimes my faith becomes part of a job. That's That's a real challenge for people in ministry full-time. Sometimes my faith becomes buried in all the challenges and the pain and the, and, and, the, and the mud and the dirt of this world. And sometimes my faith becomes buried in my own shortcomings and failures. But the words of David help to remind me that I have a God who loves me and who guides me where I need to go for my own blessing, for my own benefit. And at the end of that journey, Relationships are restored. Spirits are restored. We are redeemed. And God dwells with us, in us, and through us, and brings us home to be with him when this life is over. Psalm 23 is a bit of a cliche. It's probably overused. It's like that song on the radio that's really, really great, but after the 125th time you've heard it in one day, I've had enough of it. But let's recapture a little bit of the joy of some of these psalms and the beauty that they express and the truth that they teach. They're not just lovely words and they're not just lyrics. There's some deep stuff in there, and I hope we can all benefit from it. 
If you're in need this morning of encouragement, prayer, restoration, if you are needing to become a Christian, give your life to Jesus and be made whole in the water of baptism, we want to offer an opportunity for you to do that as Jonathan leads us in song. Now sing. 